am Mike, and this is Vince. Hello. And this is Through the Looking Glass, a podcast where we dissect the emotional happenings of history and their portrayals on the big screen. Today's episode, we are taking a look at The Last Samurai. I'm so excited. I I really am, too. I've been looking forward to it since we announced it at the end of the last episode. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I'll admit, I stopped looking forward to it a little bit when I was watching the movie. <laughs> but I came back around. I Yeah, the pain of watching it kind of threw me off for a bit, but... Digging through the historical research, that's what got me excited personally. But a lot of people came for the history, and guess what? They stayed because they want to hear more about the film aspect, Vinny, so... Well, I think you're lying, but I will go ahead and tell everyone a little bit about The Last Samurai, for those of you lucky enough to have missed this movie. Uh, So it's directed by Edward Zwick, um, known for other quasi-historical action movies, such as Defiance, Blood Diamond, and Glory. Uh, this was made in 2003, starring Tom Cruise, hot off of him playing himself in Austin Powers' Gold Member, which is deeply relevant. Um, <laughs> and basically, the movie covers the life and times of Nathan Algren, who is a uh, captain from some American war that I honestly cannot remember ooh, what it was. Ooh, I could tell you. <laughs> Please do. He was... Uh, he was- his character is supposed to be in Custer's 7th Cavalry, and there was against the war against the Cheyenne in the 1800s. Gotcha. Well, uh, I honestly forgot that that war took place, so it's a good thing that I have a historian with me. War, more of a massacre. But anyways, continue. <laughs> Continuing. Uh, so Nathan is brought aboard to try and quell a samurai fringe resistance in Japan in 1877. Um, and while he is there, he is injured and he falls in love with the wonders of the Orient. And that is pretty much the plot. It's dances with wolves in Japan. Or Avatar. (laughs) Or I'm Fern Gully and we can keep going. (laughs) Pocahontas in Japan. Yeah. It's, yeah, Japan itself is portrayed as almost this fairy tale like land, you know? In the worst way. Yeah, like once upon a time in feudal Japan, basically. (laughs) Except it takes place in Meiji Japan. (laughs) And that's honestly my biggest issue with this movie, is that it fetishizes Japanese culture and it's nostalgic for a past that doesn't really occur. I mean, my biggest issue with the movie is how bad the movie is, but... Well, yeah, that too, but (laughs) different lenses (laughs) here. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, So tell me a little bit about the, the background. I... I don't believe there was an individual who is an alcoholic Native American murderer named Nathan, Nathan Algren. Um, but tell me if any of this actually happened. Okay, so there was a Samurai Rebellion in 1877, which the movie's obviously basing the events off of this one. It wasn't the only one. There were smaller rebellions as well. So I, let me go back a little bit further. So are you familiar with the Tokugawa Shogunate? Yes. Okay. Before I continue, I just want to say I apologize if I get any Japanese pronunciations wrong. I tried my best to look them up and make sure I got them correct, but some are going to slip through the cracks, so... And on that note, I also apologize if I accidentally do a Japanese accent. <laughs> uh, yeah, let's... I'll, I'll try to curb you on that. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it's understandable because it almost feels like they're doing it in the film, and then you realize, no, it's actual Japanese actors, and that's one of the criticisms of the film. Is it naive? Is it racist? Or is it all of the above? Anyways, um, so when the Tokugawa shogunate consolidates its power at the close of the Sengoku period, let's say um, 
people dispute this, but let's go with 1613, right? Peace follows. So many samurai, they're ordered from the countryside. They're ordered to come back to the cities where the shogunate can kind of keep an eye on them, but also so they could be retrained in bureaucratic activities. Because if there's no war, then what job do these warriors have, right? Right. There's one domain that refuses this, the Satsuma domain. And the shogunate really doesn't care too much about these countryside samurai at the time, so they don't really follow through. When the Satsuma say, no, we're not coming. Um, so as a result, Satsuma Samurai, Satsuma Samurai, there we go. They have um, a bit more combat and physical training because they lived and worked in the countryside and they had to frequently hunt and go hawking. For any of you that, for any people that do not know, hawking is hunting with a trained hawk. It's pretty self-explanatory. See, I thought they were hunting hawks. Yeah. <laughs> oh, really? I mean, well, I mean, when you said hawking, that, I yeah. heard, oh, so they're going looking for hawks and eat some birds. That's fair. I think I, I'm pretty sure I came to the same conclusion before I knew what it was. Um, so what does this lead to? Nothing, really. So <laughs> all right, <laughs> that's just my historical point to show that, like, oh, my God, these samurai are already rebellious. But maybe it doesn't have anything to do with the 1860s. Anyways, um, so jumping far ahead to the 1860s, uh, Japan has been forcibly opened for trade by Matthew Perry and his fleet, you know, from the United States. Uh, and young nobles and samurai, they become increasingly frustrated by how the shogunate is handling foreign influence. Uh, growing Western influence, is, it starts to lead to this decline in the economy that's similar to China and other Asian countries. So a lot of these younger um, rebellious samurai, known as shishi, uh, they adopt the phrase sono joy, which means revere the emperor and expel the barbarians. And uh, this movement to overthrow the Tokugawa shogunate kind of grows and civil war leads to Japan, uh, known as the Boshin War in 1868. So this ends in June 1869 after 18 months, and it ends with the restoration of the imperial court, ruling the country under a single rule. So the daimyos, so daimyos were basically feudal lords, if we're going to make that comparison. Right, they had their own domains, and samurai served under the daimyos. So the daimyos' political and military power is then stripped away, and those domains are formed into prefectures. So Ken Watanabe's character of Katsumoto is based on Saigo Takamori, and Saigo Takamori plays a role in the Boshin War, and he advocates for modernization, and he's one of the senior Satsuma leaders in supporting the reforms, but he became worried about political corruption. So, in 1873, there was a major political debate that occurred in Japan concerning war with Korea. It was known as um, Seiken Naran. I think I butchered that. But anyways, it splits the coalition of those supporting the restoration. And Saigo actually has this radical idea of going to Korea and basically insulting them. So, they forced, so they're forced to kill him. And that way, Japan has a reason to go to war with Korea. He expected a success, a successful war for Japan and a meaningful death for some samurai, uh, but ultimately the vote is in favor of not going to war. So in protest, he resigns from the government position. He returns to his hometown of Kagoshima uh, with many of his ex-samurai, and many other people actually kind of follow suit because he starts to set up these academies. He um, sets up these schools that are focused on, you know, Western... Um, practices along with Chinese classics, Confucianism. And this starts to worry Tokyo because they had been dealing with small samurai revolts, most recently in uh, Kyushu. And most of these revolts, they're fought for similar reasons. Because these samurai thought that the Meiji government had gone too far in westernization, and they did not like that their um, social and financial privileges uh, were being stripped away. 
And that's where I'm going to stop the history lesson there. I'll kind of interject with other stuff after, but I just want to give a brief overview to the leading up to of the revolt. Thank you. Um, Everything that you just said there would make a way better movie. Um, Absolutely. Like a a dense political thriller set Mm -hmm. in 1877 Japan. Mm -hmm. That would be amazing. Oh, absolutely. And Tom Cruise's character of Nathan Algren is based off of a French um, officer named Jules Brunet. And he operated in the um, the Boshin War, actually. He wasn't in the 1870s. He had nothing to do with the Satsuma Rebellion. He actually um, supported the Tokugawa Shogunate. And he and... I, my knowledge on this is a little bit brief for him. But um, they set up what's called the, uh, the Itso Republic. And they tried to hold out against the imperial government. And... Uh, he had to be kind of smuggled out of the country with other people that joined him. And, yeah, he was wanted by Imperial Japan for basically trying to start his own little country and republic in Japan. Well, I mean, that, honestly, that sort of weird fetishism uh, fits with the tone of this movie. So mm-hmm. I would not doubt if they were pulling a lot from that story. Absolutely. So, uh, talking a bit about the movie. Mm-hmm. So the story, I, I kind of brushed over it, but the story plays out with Nathan Algren spending an entire year mm-hmm. in a rural Japanese village mm-hmm. where he bonds with the villagers. He starts out as a prisoner of war and goes on to join them in battle and all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. So I know you said that your knowledge of this was brief, mm-hmm. but did they train this Frenchman to become a samurai? No. <laughs> No, no. That's, that's I mean, it's so like, he wasn't the last samurai. Mm, the last samurai wasn't a white guy. The last samurai was not a white guy. In fact, Saigo Takamori is often referred to in um, modern Japanese culture as the last true samurai, um, even in oh. the late 1800s. So what's interesting is that in the late 1800s, there was this huge nostalgia for the Edo period. Um, and a lot of authors try to... Um, capitalize on this nostalgia and really you know it's kind of like i mean we see it all throughout history in any country it's like when did we forget our values you know right type thing so it's this is kind of happening and the thing is with uh, bushido is that historians there's no evidence to suggest that there's this strict set of codes that were consistent all throughout japanese history bushido is malleable and there's many interpretations of it which allows it to survive all the way to modern japanese history yeah, that, that was one of my questions was mm-hmm. there's a line in the movie at some point where um, he, uh, Katsumoto says something vaguely poetic and then he says, that is Bushido. And it yeah. seems like the movie does not give the proper respect to any of these cultural values. Mm-hmm. Uh, like it, there's also another point where Katsumoto just kind of throws out it was karma. Yeah, I mean, karma would... That didn't... The way it was used made me roll my eyes, but it wouldn't be out of the question. They do believe in karma, you know, Buddhism. Uh, Buddhism right. was a huge religion in Japan at the time. It, but that, that's exactly where my issue comes with it. Mm-hmm. They included that line because Japan was a Buddhist, was a country with a majority of Buddhists. Yeah. They did not include that line because that line was appropriate for that scene. That Absolutely. It's, I think it goes back to that fetishization of Japanese culture, you know? It's, and like the, the intro, the opening, right? The like first minute and a half, it's, you know, Katsumoto is talking about the mythical origins of Japan, right? How, mm-hmm. you know, the blade and the drops form the islands. And he believes it was made by a few brave men. And how Japanese, you know, currently in the 1870s during the movie have forgotten honor. And you have that stupid tiger, right? Yes, there is so much of this movie that 
we can remove and nothing of value would be lost. Yep. And that tiger in that opening scene is definitely one of them. The, yeah, that entire opening scene I don't really think needed to... He's just stoically sitting there. And it, that, honestly, that immediately told me that this movie was going to be about a fictional fairy tale version of Japan, right? Right. And I, I have not watched a lot of Japanese cinema, so mm. I do not know if those types of beats are are common in it. And I don't know if it's an homage to that, but given this director's history, I'm going to guess no. Yeah, I mean, my I haven't seen a lot of my um, Japanese cinema is not too modern. It was more back in like seen 50s, uh, The Human Condition, Harikuri, um, a lot of Akira Kurosawa films. So they're very samurai based. And So my question to you then is, does this have the beats of a samurai film? Absolutely not. <laughs> At least okay. based on the ones I've seen, the classics. No, honestly... Um, a lot of people pro- uh, might know this. Uh, for those that don't, a lot of classic samurai films heavily inspired West spaghetti westerns. Um, like, oh, what is it? A Fistful of Dollars with Clint Eastwood. If you take a look at that and put it next to Yojimbo, they are seriously, they are just the same movie with just a different setting. And in Kur- Akira Kurosawa, they asked him about it. And he said, it's a fine film. I know it's a fine film because it's my film. Um, but yeah, you can see these direct comparisons. And um, yeah, samurai films were, you know, the ones I've seen at least, they are um, very much influential on like the spaghetti westerns. Gotcha. Okay. Well, so back to what I was saying before, that tiger doesn't need to exist because it doesn't come up again. Absolutely. I mean, I think the only time it really comes up is when he's fighting in the forest, right? Well, when they're talking about... When they're fighting in the forest and then Katsumoto says, I'm working on a poem about a dream I had. Yeah. And I think that the tiger is the dream. The death poems made sense because a lot of you know Japanese samurai, they did make death poems before committing seppuku. In fact, samurai did practice in cultural arts when they weren't training. Uh, calligraphy, poetry, things like that. It did make sense. But it's like your earlier point. It didn't make sense to the scene. It just felt like it was added in. Right. And... That is an overarching theme of this movie. Mm-hmm. Things need to have in-text inspirations. Yes. Just about everything that occurs in this movie is either just on-the-face characterization mm-hmm. or an action sequence. Yeah. And it, it oscillates between the two. Can we talk for just a quick second about the final battle at the end where Tom Cruise cuts a rifle in half with a katana and kills a soldier? <laughs> No, M- Michael, 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 you got to understand that those blades are so sharp. How? Oh. And Tom Cruise, he's been training for this for 12 months. Well, it was a winter, actually. He's an expert. It wasn't, even, it wasn't even a year. It was a winter, remember? That makes it even worse. <laughs> oh. yeah. And those are single blades. Also, <sighs> can we? the samurai armor didn't make sense. Katsumoto, no, I'm sorry. I'm Wow, this movie is sucking me in. Saigo Takamori, he wore his military uniform. A conscripted Japanese army existed during the Boshin War and afterwards. It didn't, you know, exist because Tom Cruise and, you know, white guys came over and were like, we're here to save you. No. No. They brought advisors over. And also the American advisors weren't military. There were a couple, sure. But mostly Japan, they were trying to model our agriculture and education system. (laughs) Not the military. If anything, they were, Japanese were very much interested in uh, Great Britain. Their modernization efforts, but also that, you know, British gentlemanship, you know, chivalry. Absolutely. It brings us to Timothy Spall. <laughs> oh, yes. Timothy Spall is the key to all of this. Uh, he's the key to our podcast, too, quite frankly. Yes. It's, it's, he's the reason that we were here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, 
Yeah. <laughs> he, it's uh, just a lot of it, really. This movie made me mad, not going to lie. Me too, and for different reasons. So I, I, I'm just kind of going to go through chronologically yeah. just all of the ridiculousness. Mm-hmm. One, when Nathan first arrives in Japan, the, the green screen work in the CGI <laughs> makes it look like there's some kind of SNL skit being set up. <laughs> it is so bad. Oh, there was like, one... Yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. It's like they, they, they didn't bother getting on a real boat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they just tried to do as much of that on green screen as possible. Um, speaking of that, I did see something um, when he's... On the boat, right? And you see the mountain? Yeah. That especially, like, that stood out to me. And it seemed like it was an old, um, oh, I can't remember the movie studio. Is it Paramount that has the mountain? I think so, yeah. Something like that. It reminded me immediately of that, that screen. It didn't. I didn't think, oh, he's that's Mount Fuji. He's getting closer to Japan. But, uh, yeah, it, I didn't even notice those things, honestly. So I think this is just a disaster of a movie. <laughs> Definitely. And, oh, man, Tom Cruise is so bad in this movie. He is. It, yeah, he really is. The only thing that would make this, I'll say better, but I mean worse, <laughs> is if he was doing, like, a Dick Van Dyke-level accent, mm-hmm. but trying to do a Confederate su- Confederate Southern drawl, oh, yeah. that would be incredible. The, this entire thing is just, like, a self-right anime fan fiction <laughs> from a Civil War reenactor who's never been to Japan. It's, yeah, it, oh my god. I have so much to go through, so if you just want to keep going down the list, I'll bring up relevant points, because there's a lot. <laughs> Definitely. Um, Nathan arriving in Japan, that entire scene is just... Stupid? A mishmash of visual shorthand showing us that where Nathan is is foreign, mm-hmm. and it, uh, treating traditional Japanese things as... Backdrop, yeah, uh, feels a little bit disrespectful. Mm, Timothy Small especially is just used for context. I actually, um, his line where he said the emperor is mad for all things Western, that was terrible. Um, but right, that line is first off the Meiji government. They were mad for all things Westerns in terms of modernization. They didn't want to become colonized by Western countries. They did admire the modernization of these countries, and they conducted a bunch of missions. Uh, most notable being the Iwakura mission, where they sent diplomats and people over to the United States and Europe to see what they could learn. Um, and basing off the movie, though, and bringing in military advisors, yeah, I said before that they did bring in some military advisors, but mostly the advisors were civilians, and they were focused on education and agriculture. The main goals hmm. of those missions were to gain rec- uh, recognition diplomatically and to renegotiate unfair treaties, particularly with the United States. Um, the Meiji government, they wanted Japan to be recognized on the world stage the same way Western powers were recognized. So they adopt this slogan called uh, Fukoku Kyohi, and it translates to enriching the country, strengthen the armed forces. And I will refer to that as rich country, strong military, because that's how it was taught to me. <laughs> gotcha. So, and that, in turn, that, you know, goes to samurai believing that modernization, it wasn't not moving too fast, as it said in the movie, but it was moving in a direction that they didn't like again loss of those social privileges uh the han system was gone which was the class structure under the tokugawa shogunate gotcha and then that uh last thing that line the ancient and the modern are at war for the soul of japan i hate that i really do (laughs) it's like the writers watched the old world war ii propaganda film know your enemy japan and they based all of their knowledge of japan from that honestly they might have all of this said 
there there is like memories of good technical filmmaking here. Oh yeah. Like it is it's shot pretty well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the color palette is leaves something to be desired, um mm-hmm. but it's well edited outside mm-hmm. of the effects. Mm-hmm. Um there's there's a couple of scenes that I want to touch on specifically for their literary purposes. So food and rain are the mm-hmm. two things I'm going to talk about. Okay. When characters share a meal, they are experiencing communion. Literary shorthand terms. Mm. So when two characters are eating together, if the meal goes well, those characters have grown closer together. If a meal goes poorly, those characters have grown further apart. This is half used in the movie. Nathan is sitting with the the family that's hosting him, and a, a kid sitting at the table makes a face at Nathan. Yeah. And then Nathan just like stares at him mouth agape. Yeah. Like he is perplexed by the existence of this child. Yeah. And then the scene immediately after that is them fighting in the rain. Yeah. Which is used for character transitions. Mm-hmm. A character is rebirthed or grows significantly in the rain. Yeah. And it's played like that's happening. There is the the score swells and Nathan keeps getting up after being beaten down to the ground by this dude with a stick. But we have not seen anything from Nathan before mm-hmm. that shows that he would normally give up in that situation. Mm-hmm. We are not, there is not enough in the text to show that Nathan is making growth there. That's, yeah, that's a really good point. Didn't realize that. And then the meal thing, mm-hmm. we have that scene again. It's played properly when Nathan asks for rice in Japanese. Yeah. And then everyone is smiling and laughing, and it shows that he grows closer to the family. Mm-hmm. And then after that, in the broad light of day, we have Nathan being told one of my favorite lines of this movie, too many mind. Yeah. No mind. Uh, yeah. Oh, my God. And then, and then he has a fight that ends in a stalemate. Yeah. We need to flip the two fights. Mm-hmm. Have the fight where he loses be in the light of day, and then have the meal go well. And then have the too many mind scene, and then have him get the stalemate in the rain. Very minor changes, but suddenly what we see on screen has a reason to be there from a literary perspective. Mm. I think that the director knows that he's supposed to have meals (laughs) and rain and use them somehow, so he just throws them on the screen. Either that or his editor screwed him over. But that, that is really one good microcosm for everything that I've found bad with this movie. I can get past the bad effects and the bad acting, mm-hmm. but what is happening on screen has no purpose. Everything is trying to frame the wonders of the Orient as a work of cinema, and that makes it just unbearable. Yeah, those are fantastic points, and... Um... Even the soundtrack is has some pretty good moments, but I find I can't enjoy it because what they get right is just overshadowed by how much they get wrong, and what they get wrong is almost everything. <laughs> right. And so, in, in this instance, the text of history itself, mm-hmm. we are also, we are achieving a better understanding. The, the goal of mm-hmm. what we're doing here is, uh, it's actually a... a genre of literary criticism called new historicism where we are trying to both understand the history 
and the literature better by comparing the two. Yeah. And for these purposes, we are looking at the history as its own text Mm -hmm. and the movie as its own text. The movie should have, should be literature first and history second. Mm -hmm. But in this case, we are putting the cart before the horse and trying to have a history movie that is history first with a story second. And that is where it falls flat. I mean, absolutely. It's a movie, right? And movie is to tell a story to entertain, right? Yes. And, and te- technically, this did entertain me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I would... I, I want to try Saki now. Saki! <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sorry. I had to do it once. I've been waiting for an opportunity. I, I, I was considering just putting a soundbite at the start of this <laughs> of just him yelling Saki. So the, it's a scene where Tom Cruise is lying failing to sleep in this Japanese village, and he cries out for sake. Yeah, because he's it's an terrible. alcoholic. He's going through withdrawal. <laughs> right. Uh, man, you know what's kind of funny? It's a little bit off topic, but um, I'm going to get ramen after uh, we record the episode. I, that is, that's 100% off topic, but yeah. thank you for letting me know. But it's like the movie, right? I'm just including Japanese or Asian culture into it with no purpose at all. Yeah. That's that is a good point. Yeah. Speaking of an inclusion of things for no reason, ninja attack. Oh, I have my an God. entire I have a bolded line on my notes that just says ninja attack. That was amazing. I I, I was I was watching this movie and someone walked in and said, "What is this? I what is is this racist?" The answer that is was yes. The first question. The answer was yes. Um, so I do have notes about Ninja. Um, (laughs) oh my God, that scene. Um, (laughs) so Ninja or Shinobi, uh, they were mercenaries, assassins, and secret agents that operated mostly in feudal Japan. After the Tokugawa shogunate consolidates power in the 17th century, they actually faded away into obscurity. But like Samurai, there becomes this nostalgia for the past, and it creates these misconceptions about ninja that uh, most of our popular media is based on. So those, all of those ninjas with the crossbows and everything, no, that, that would not have happened. That makes no sense whatsoever. They've been gone for hundreds of years. Now, I'm not saying that were there probably a couple of like mercenaries and agents and things like that. No, absolutely. They still existed, but they wouldn't have been wearing you know the black suits and cloth with, you know throwing stars and everything like that it just so ridiculous and that's a prime example right of right. you know just being nostalgic for a past that didn't exist my favorite part about that scene is a guy gets stabbed in the back <laughs> and literally with no exaggeration he grabs his stomach and goes oh! and then falls over backwards <laughs> i was dying it was terrible like the wilhelm screen you know yeah <laughs> scream <laughs> Immediately following this, there's another exchange that I found quite funny. Mm-hmm. Was Nathan talking to Katsumoto, and he says, "Who sent those men to kill you? Was it the Emperor, Amora?" <laughs> and he says, "If the Emperor wants my death, he has but to ask." And Tom Cruise goes, "Oh, so is Amora." <laughs> <laughs> okay, that actually brings me to a great point. Um, most everything with the depiction of the Emperor was completely wrong. Really? Yes. So. <laughs> So, okay, in 1605, when Tokugawa over, um, Tokugawa Ieyasu and his son, Tokugawa Hidetada, they actually write a code for behavior for the nobility. And it basically states that the emperor has to devote their time to uh, scholarship and the arts. And they almost never leave uh, their palace. 
their compound in Kyoto. So Meiji, right, he, he grows up in this compound with all of his imperial advisors' courts, and he's doing his own thing. And he also has congenital diseases, I think. Did I say that right? I was, I'm always messed up with that word. Um, basically due to royal inbreeding. Uh, he has beriberi, and he could barely walk. Uh, little is uh, known of his like uh, upbringing, but many accounts are contradictory. And I'm pretty positive that someone like Katsumoto, a samurai from the countryside, would not have been his teacher. Hmm. I, uh, that makes a, a whole lot of sense, but with how rigid they were in the mm-hmm. film about that, I assumed that at least that was seated in reality. Um, I mean, he I can't w- say I'm surprised. He was, the Emperor Meiji, he was pretty much a puppet to the Meiji advisors, but it's, most of it just, it, the way it was presented, right? Um, and also, going back to the ninja scene real quickly, what's funny is like how ridiculous that scene is before, you know, the theater being performed. Right. It's actually pretty accurate in Japanese culture. I was I did a little bit of research into it because I wasn't sure if it was like kabuki theater, but it was actually called um, it's called Kyogen. It's short comedic theater that's usually performed before a larger a longer performance, excuse me. And um it was apparently from what I found it was pretty um exclusive or it was mostly seen in the countryside. So it was pretty cool to see that. Huh. Yeah. Neat. Well, that makes that scene a little bit less racist. A little bit, but not enough. If you have any type of racism in your scene, let's just go ahead and mark that as um, wrong, bad. <laughs> right. So, an- another criticism of this movie, mm. Nathan's character arc. So, a- at the start, we hear uh, it mentioned that Omora read Nathan's book mm-hmm. and about how his study of the Cheyenne helped defeat them. Then, on the boat on his way to Japan... We see Nathan with a, a Native American satchel mm-hmm. in which he keeps his journal. <laughs> oh, I think I see where you're going with this. I'm sorry, go ahead. What this shows us is Nathan has done this before. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, that's what I, I didn't He's even done know. this exact same thing. <laughs> and then he murdered them. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. And, <laughs> and he's, it, we go from 12 months or less than 12 months to I'll kill whoever you want me to kill. <laughs> Uh, to I will literally kill myself in front of the emperor <laughs> yeah. if you let Japan fall apart. Yeah, I love that uh, Japan was going to fall apart if it wasn't just for Tom Cruise, you know? <laughs> like, oh, another white savior trope, you know? Oh my god, so bad. Also, with Omura, you know, I looked at Omura and his um, associates as, you know, the personification of the Meiji Restoration, of, you know, the bureaucrats. And mm-hmm. the thing is, many of those of the you know government officials in the Meiji Restoration, they were former samurai. They gave up their privileges because they wanted to. They thought it would benefit the country. They wanted to strengthen the country and modernize it. And also, it almost implies that you know you see a lot of traditional Western traits with Omura, like you know this tycoon with the railroad and everything. Mm-hmm. It it feels like it implies that there was no greedy, selfish Japanese people before the Western influence arrived. And it's right. And yeah, yeah, it's applying all these Western motifs to it. I'm not saying, you know, that either are perfect or totally evil type thing. It's just it takes away the nuance and humanity from literal people. These, you know, yeah, it's Japan, but they're people. They're a different country. Like it's the thing is, Omora has so so little screen time that he can just be evil. Yeah, <laughs> Like he the man. Literally has a Mr. Monopoly mustache, and he is building railroads. Yeah. <laughs> it's so unnecessary. The imp- All of this is just so silly. The Imperial Japanese Army, too, is... Now, the top-knot scene, 
that does make a bit of sense because the top knot was if you cut off the top knot, you know, for a samurai, that was equivalent to having your head cut off. So gotcha. that didn't well, I mean, sense. it's not equivalent. You're still alive after. You're okay. Yeah, you get it though. Sorry, I'm <laughs> yes. I'm emotional right now, Vinny. Okay, <laughs> getting fired up. That is another scene that was played so poorly. Yeah, it could have been. It, uh, you want a good example? You gotta handle those things with a light touch. A good, uh, no, not a good, a amazing example of a top knot being cut off in a film is Hurry Curry. It was 19... I believe it was the 1950s. It's a samurai film, and it is told. Um, it's about a ronin, basically, that shows up to a, um, a feudal lord's domain, a daimyo, right? And he requests to uh, commit seppuku, the ritualistic suicide, which they did properly display when Katsumoto cuts off the one former samurai general's head. By the way, yeah, I, I did. I do remember reading about that. Yeah, about how as Japan evolved, mm-hmm. the rules became a bit more laxed, from cutting a cross in yourself to just stabbing and being beheaded. Yeah, it, it becomes uh, heavily ritualized in the Edo period. Um, there was like a whole ceremony. You're given last meal. You write a poem. You're wearing white robes in front of everybody, and it's yeah. So. Um, Harikuri is, like I said, it's about that ronin who arrives to commit seppuku, and they tell him that his story is um, interesting because they had another ronin show up previously, like quite recently, with the same story. And it's telling both of these stories and how they're intertwined and how these two ronins' um, lives are connected. That's all I'm going to say because, I honestly, it's one of my favorite films of all time. I recommend people watch it. It is a phenomenal movie. Um, with just so much humanity, and I recommend it. But there is a scene with top knots in it, and that's all I'll say because it's done a lot better than the was it emotional manipulation you get with the music, <laughs> right? And um, the acting was so bad. It, also, the portrayal of the Imperial Japanese Army was almost like they were, you know, the lunatic fanatics that you see in their portrayals of them in World War Two. Right. It's a lot. It just. Again, it comes back to Know Your Enemy Japan. They just watched this propaganda film and they went, Genius! <laughs> Actually, there is a line in the movie where Tom Cruise says, full stop to Timothy Spall, I want to know my enemy. Yeah. So, <laughs> oh my we, have, we have in-text support for this idea. <sighs> this damn movie. One final thing about the timeline of this movie. Yes. It took less than 12 months. Well, actually, first of all, why were they training him to be a samurai at all? He was a prisoner of war this entire time. Yeah, that didn't make sense, honestly. It it would have made sense for them to take him prisoner so they could learn from him, too. But him giving, you know, like, training and everything like that just didn't make sense at, at all. <laughs> right. So, and then, okay, so we go less than 12 months of this, mm-hmm. of him just thwacking children with sticks. Mm-hmm. Uh to him being able to use his katana mm-hmm. and kill three guys with guns in the street, including Japanese odd job with the birthmark on his face. Oh my god. It took less than 12 months. Okay, within a calendar, we have Tom Cruise killing Taka's husband, mm-hmm. living at Taka's house, to watching Taka shower, to him returning, presumably, to go nail Taka. That entire romance would make no sense, by the way. It, it wouldn't have happened. It's, it's implausible. And it reminds me of uh, James Clavell's novel, Shogun, where a very, very, very similar romance plays out. Not the same, obviously, but 
I can't help but portray a lot of this movie to uh, that novel, and I really hate the novel as well. And I know a lot of people love it, but you know, as somebody who has studied this time in history for many years, it's <laughs> same issues pretty much. Fetishizes takes. this culture. I like it? Yeah, it's it's so frustrating. I'm trying. I, I'm getting really fired up, and I'm trying to organize my thoughts. <laughs> And oh my god! And he comes out wearing her husband's armor. She <laughs> yeah. she dresses him in it. That scene like made me squirm in my seat like a child watching a sex scene. It was so uncomfortable. I hated it. Also, I just want to say the scene of the samurai when they're entering the city, right? And everyone's screaming "samurai" and running out of the way in fear. Why? They are on horses. They're wearing kimonos with a top knot. Why are they afraid? It's not like they haven't seen something like this before. Right. It makes, the whole... uh, it makes no sense. <laughs> I don't get that scene. I really don't. I want someone to explain it. Why are they afraid? It's, oh my. Uh, can we can we get Edward Zwick on the, on the horn? Yeah, do, we, do you have a call in? Yeah, his other films too. Like Blood Diamond was received pretty well, and I'm trying to remember if I've seen it or not. I have not seen Blood Diamond. Uh, I have seen, I think, Defiance. I have seen Defiance, yeah. I enjoyed it as a middle schooler, and I remember hating it as a college student. <laughs> the two times I watched it. Definitely seen Glory. I'm pretty sure that yes. everyone from our generation was at one point herded into an elementary school auditorium yep. where Glory was shown on a projector just before winter break. Or a half day. Or a half day. I'm out of stuff to say. Do you have anything interesting, anything else to say about the history um let me think oh um they by the way the satsuma rebellion they used firearms they had artillery and they did not wear samurai armor they did use swords only when they ran out of ammunition so what i'm hearing is literally every single detail of what happens on screen Mm -hmm. is incorrect it's yeah they they were they definitely based it off of these events but they had no interest in retelling the story there did not need to be we didn't even need Jules Brunet, right? Since he was in the Boshin War. If you want to do the Satsuma Rebellion, there's an interesting story there about, you know, old versus new and, you know, Saigo and his story. That I think that would make an interesting story. We don't need any Western characters. It could be just all Japanese characters, right? It's right. it's so maybe in like in the background or something if for for advisors, if the scene calls for it, right? But yeah, they it's just, this is an uninteresting movie, you know, with a white savior trope narrative that's just lost in a sea of interesting actual history. I actually did want to ask you real quickly, though. Um, what are your opinion on, like, those shell shock slow down scenes in the middle of battles? I think if they're well done, like in Saving Private Ryan, they're effective. But I think it's used cheaply by a lot of directors nowadays. Especially this director. Yeah. I mean, in general... I, I think that those are very dated. Mm-hmm. Like, they were very popular in this era of, like, between 1998 until 2005. Yeah. And now, if I see one of those in a movie, mm-hmm. it feels out of place and odd. So, for that reason, I don't really like them. Yeah. But this, it was played so weird in this movie. Mm-hmm. So, we don't need all of the many scenes. There's, like, four of them mm-hmm. of Tom Cruise just flashing back to murdering Native Americans. Yeah. That can be handled so much more subtly. Mm-hmm. And it would be it would be better characterization if he told Taka about that. And that was how the audience learned it. Absolutely. And I think that would go way farther for his arc mm-hmm. and for Taka's arc. 
to because so Taka has been traumatized by this war because her husband is dead. Mm-hmm. Nathan has been traumatized by war because he was compelled to commit atrocities, and they can find a mutual understanding there. Mm-hmm. But this director and writer suck, <laughs> so we didn't get that. Yeah, that that's the most frustrating part is because there's a good movie in here. Mm-hmm. But everyone dropped the ball. In fact, I don't know if anyone was ever holding it or if they were just kicking it down the road. Yep, yeah, Because absolutely. nothing went right. Uh, yeah, that's a great way to describe the movie. Nothing went right. Um, so to kind of wrap up, I was curious. Did you want me to finish off my quick little timeline of the actual Satsuma Rebellion so you can hear how it actually oh. ended? Yes, please. All right. So, as we said, uh, Saigo Takamori, he resigns from his government position, returns to his hometown of Kagoshima, Sets up those academies. So, um, 57 men are led by a police officer named Nakahara Hisao. I definitely mispronounced that. But anyways, they're sent to investigate Satsuma in the belief of civil unrest. When they are captured and under torture, they admit to being sent to assassinate Saigo. Um, we don't really know which of these, you know, we don't know if this is true or not. Because both, both maintain that, um... What's it called? That, yes, he was there to assassinate them. And, um, sorry, they were there to assassinate Saigo. But Nakahara denies this. And, um, but many, it was used as a justification by Satsuma to, um, rebel. So, Tokyo then attempts a covert operation of removing weapons and stockpiles that were being kept, kept in Kagoshima. Uh, these men are then discovered, and it leads to a conflict resulting in Satsuma victory. And over a thousand of uh, Saigo's students, they carry out raids on naval yards and arsenals over the next three days. And this is what leads a reluctant Saigo Takamori to leave his semi-retirement and lead this rebellion against the central government. He uh, actually criticized the raids, but he did make the decision um, of leading this rebellion upon hearing of the assassination plot. And I say that with quotation marks. Did you have anything you wanted to interject there? No, just I would love to see that. As a movie. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You can keep Ken Watanabe. Exactly. That, that, that is what was in my head precisely. Absolutely. Um, so, small arms consisted of Snyder and Enfield rifles, uh, various carbines and pistols. Uh, there were enough individual arms to equip each soldier, but no reserve stocks existed. And this is from an uh, article I found from uh, the author's last name is Buck. I believe it was James Buck. Um, I will, on our Twitter page, I will send out, you know, um, extended reading for those interested. Nice. Um, but soldiers, they also, they each had a three-foot sword, and that would be their primary weapon once munitions were gone. Once those were gone. So they did use weapons. They did use um, guns. Um, let's see. So on February 14th in 1877, the Satsuma Vanguard, they cross into the Kumamoto Prefecture, which is roughly 560 miles from Tokyo. Um, so both Kagoshima and Kumamoto are located on the island of, um, I believe it was, yes, Kyushu. Sorry, my notes didn't include that. So just quick geographical sidebar. Japan is an archipelago with five major islands comprising the country, right? There are thousands actually, but the five main ones are um, from south to north. Kyushu, Shikoku, Honshu, and Hokkaido. And the fifth being Okinawa, part of the Ryukyu Islands. So, um, as I said before, Kagoshima and Kumamoto are both located in Kyushu, while Tokyo is located in Honshu. So, there's that distance between them, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Imperial forces, they open fire on Satsuma forces as they try to force themselves into Kumamoto Castle. 
Uh, Saigo besieges the castle in fear of having his supply lines cut off, but his troops, they were not prepared for a siege and they failed in taking the castle. This gives the government time to mobilize their army against him. So a relief force comes and forces Saigo and his men to retreat, dealing him a major defeat, but Saigo counterattacks an offensive on uh, Taburu, Taburuzaka, which is a major pass of Kumamoto, and that's led by Yamagata Aritomo, who's the leader of the Imperial Japanese Army. So this leads to an eight-day battle. It was extremely bloody, and in the end, Saigo is outgunned and outnumbered and running out of bullets. So only after running out of bullets did Saigo and his men resort to swords. And for the next three months, Saigo is forced back by growing Imperial forces, and morale was low amongst rebelling samurai. So... By August, uh, the rebellion is reduced to 3,000 men after starting with roughly 25,000. And many of the remaining men are captured by imperial forces at Mount Enodake, or they commit seppuku, while Saigo and a small number of men retreated to Kagoshima for a final stand. And, um, oh. yeah, so his forces, they're left, roughly 500, they set up at Shiri, Shiriyama, and they awaited an attack from Yamagata and his forces. And what they do is Yamagata, he didn't want Saigo to escape, like at Mount Enodaki. So they bombard his position for several days while setting up trenches around Shiriyama. Uh, and then Saigo, in the end, charges the Imperial forces. And after intense combat, most of Saigo's men were left dead. And Saigo and his men were hit by rifle fire. And there is legend and myth around his death. Um, they say that he was able to, um, that his body was carried away by a lieutenant and he committed seppuku. And they then hid the head, but uh, later autopsies revealed that his body had several rifle wounds that was definitely fatal, and his head was probably removed after his death. Gotcha. And that is the end of the Satsuma Rebellion. Well, um, I would I would like to watch that as I, as I mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. It's a lot more interesting, and like I said, those are the major beats. There's a bit more detail within that, but I just wanted to give people a broad overview of the actual events that the Last Samurai was trying to portray. Because that the battle scenes just sound a lot more ridiculous. I mean, a movie about Saigo, you know, like, starting off strong, right? Fighting against this moral corruption. Because that was his entire basis for this war in the Rebellion, was fighting against moral corruption. And slowly losing that morale and purpose, right? Just like, I think, a slow draw film, right? It, it seems a right. lot more interesting, but... And the classist undertones would make a lot more sense. Absolutely. Which is especially interesting when... Your character of Saiko Takamori is, you know, part of this elite. And he, a lot of them are fighting to retain that status. Right. Being defeated by a conscripted army, you know. But, yeah. All right. I think that concludes my thoughts. That concludes mine. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, that's the end of the second episode. Uh, did you, should we tell people what the next episode should be? Or should we wait? Sure. All right. So our next episode, we are taking a look at the Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman film, All the President's Men. I have not actually seen this, and I am excited. I saw it once in school, and I haven't seen it. I'm actually currently reading Bob Woodward's book on it right now. And again, you prove that you put in way more effort than I do in this podcast. <laughs> I mean, you put equal effort in. Vinny, you edit. Okay? And he does, he does, he does an amazing job. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Um, so yes, we don't know when that episode will be out. It might take a little bit longer just because we, Vinny and I have our own things going on in our lives. So stay tuned for that on our, um, Twitter page. We will announce that. And if you want to make your own podcast, stick around for the end and we'll, uh, hear some words from Anchor. <laughs>